Okay, I was very excited to be up here. It's quite high, hey Paul? Like you could have a dive suit and just sort of get down there. Um, and uh, you know, why, why play John Mayer? You've got to show, show, show. Eh? Show me your love. Um, something about artists. I, I don't know John Mayer. He's, he's a great guitarist, great vocalist. I love listening to his music. Uh, I don't think he's a Christian. Not following Jesus at the moment. But one thing about artists which intrigues me is the ability of them to almost discern from nature and from culture and society. They're very observant people. You know, you think of Trevor Noah. What makes a comedian so interesting to listen to is that they have an ability to look at society and then to snatch something out. And they share stuff in a way that resonates with us. And um, what Mr. Mayer has picked up here, he didn't realize it, he's... He's discovered a truth about God's universe, and especially about us humans, is that love is not a thing, which is a noun. Now, if you studied when I did, we still learned grammar. A noun is like a thing word. It doesn't do anything, a, a pot or whatever. Love is a verb. And what are verbs? Verbs are doing. They're action words, aren't they? And, uh, and so Mr. Mayer has indeed stumbled on what the inspired scriptures that we have as Christians and in, in, in the Hebrew scriptures in the New Testament is that love is actually a doing thing. And that's really where we're going this morning. Um, are you enjoying the Colossians series at the moment, folk? Been fun, hey? I think we're 10 days in. If you, if you aren't part of that, are, are there st there's still some books at the back, please. Join us on this 30-day journey, month of October. Spring is here and we're going through Colossians. Uh, my topic this morning is loving people. And um, that's why I thought Mr. Mayer would be an unusual intro to, to that. Um, the letter to Colossians, just to refresh you, um, Paul touched on it last week. But just a bit of background. This is a letter that was written while the Apostle Paul's in prison with his team. Apostle Paul, not Paul Taylor, was writing this letter. He's in prison, but he's not wasting his time. He's, he's scribing letters, which is what they did prior to emails and prior to um, SMSs and all that other stuff. You wrote a letter, and he was writing these letters, one to the church in Colossae and one to the church in Laodicea, which gets lost. That's a long story. I'd love to read it. Um, but the big thing is that I want to just remind you that Paul has never met these Christians uh, in the church at Colossae. Um, he's heard about them, and he's heard about them from a guy, I think, Epaphras, who's with Paul at the moment, and it sounds like a few years previously, Paul had hired a hall in, the, in this mega city called Ephesus. Quite an impressive city if you've ever been there in the old days. One of the, one of the big cities of the Roman Empire. And for two years, he preached um, the gospel. And Luke in the book of Acts says that the whole of that region in two years heard the word of the Lord, the gospel. Amazing. It was quite a, quite a move and shaker, or Paul. Um, and... Uh, he then writes this introduction, which I'm going to read from Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. He says, we always thank, that's Paul and Timothy and his team, we thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Paul mentioned how that's one thing that Paul was doing. He's in prison, and he's praying, and he's concerned about people he's never seen. I mean, what, what type of person does that? What, what, what's going on in someone that can do that? Listen, if I don't know people... Good on you, boys. You know, you, you do what you've got to do. Not Paul. He says, 
Because we've heard, now listen yeah, of your faith in Christ Jesus, first thing, put that in your memory banks. And second, Paul writes, the love that you have for all God's people. The faith and love, and again, he's pairing those words, I'm playing on that, that spring from the hope that is stored for you in heaven about what you've heard in the message of the gospel, and that's come to you. And then he closes off this intro by saying, all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you, he reminds them, since the day you heard it and understood God's grace and all its truth. Something jumped out when I read that introduction, the fact that there are two things that Paul's getting really pumped about. He's really excited. He's heard about, and don't forget, he's in prison. He's in Rome, miles away, the other extreme of the empire. And it seems like news is leaking back about two things that he finds really gets him excited. Their faith in Jesus and their love for the, for the saints, as he calls it, for love for God's people. Um, Paul in his other letters does similar things. Let me just read to you. There's a church in Thessalonica uh, in near Macedonia. When he writes to the Thessalonians, he says, listen, talking again about his team, we ought to always thank God for you, brothers and sisters, Thessalonian Christians, because your faith is growing more and more. There it is, faith. And the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, amongst God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions, and he goes on, and he's like literally saying, I'm boasting about you, because I'm hearing two things about you, Thessalonians, Colossians, whoever, I'm hearing about your faith in Jesus, I'm hearing about your love, which is great. So just store those. Faith and love um, are inseparable in the Bible. Wherever you read about, if someone's talking about faith, somewhere along the line, or belief, somewhere along the line, they're going to mention Love is a verb. Um, you can read the whole canon, what they call the canon of Scripture, which is from Genesis, the old Hebrew Bible, all the way through to the New Testament, written in Greek. And if you prize apart faith and love, doing, you run up against Yahweh in the commandments in Deuteronomy, saying, love your neighbor. It's not just about your belief, it's about doing something. Um, the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, used to get quite incensed when God's people just said, oh, we got faith, we got faith, we you know, we got faith. And they'd say, oh, no, you don't really have faith because you ain't doing any loving. Um, Jesus did the same thing. Remember the story of the good Samaritan? God came to trick Jesus into something, and Jesus tells a story which is about loving. He's talking about belief, but Jesus says, no, no. And so it goes on. And so one of the distinguishing features of this early church, and we see it early when Luke writes his book, which we call the Acts, the Acts of, some call it the Acts of the Apostles. Others say it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit, the Acts of the church, who knows. But, but it's that early community, early on, Luke says, was unbelievable and distinguished, one of the distinguishing features was the way they lived together, that community, that united community. Uh, I've just written here, they, they were lots of joy. I like that. Going back to last week, joy, very important. Lots of sharing of resources. I mean, they were selling stuff to, to provide for one another. Um, they were eating together, always a great sign. 
Thank you, Jesus, for meals and getting together. They were praying together, which is also good. But there's just something that this like vibrant community. And what, what is interesting is that when people live as if they really do love one another and they really are united in God's love, it doesn't go unnoticed. It's like a, it's like a beautiful sunrise or excuse me, a beautiful scene. It becomes beautiful and attractive. It attracts people's attention. And that's what we see in the New Testament. Uh, this church in Acts, people notice the folk that were living around this, yeah, this small group initially. It was like a sect. It was known as a Jewish cult almost. But people noticed one thing. Not so much what they preached. Not, not so much. People were noticing the way they loved one another. And, and that's to be expected because Jesus, while he was on earth, told his disciples, listen, you guys, you girls, if you live this way, you're going to be salt to a society. You're going to be light. You're going to be noticed. You're going to be like a city, not hidden away, but a city on a hill. Reminds me of Tuscany. Oh, I want to go there. Those beautiful perch villages. You can see them from miles, but I'm going to move on. So, verse 4. Now, now what's surprising about this early church and the fact that they're actually even making an impact is that the situation that the early church began in it's like starting a business during COVID. You just don't do stupid things like it. The, the things were just completely against them. Uh, the political environment, the economic environment. So if you became a Christian in first century AD in the Roman Empire, it was like signing your literal death warrant. At least, at probably best, your career wasn't going to go where we all wanted to go, up and to the right. You, you took yourself out of line of promotion in any of your major bureaucratic, civil thing, you're not going to get there. Because Christians were despised, eventually hated. And that's why you see the first, second, third century, Christians end up being thrown to the lines, they're in the Colosseum, they, you know, they're hiding. Um, and, and this was an environment, folks, very much like today, where the politicians, the Roman emperors, they knew how to play the religious game. They knew where their, where their bread was buttered. So what they, they would do, just work with me now, giving you a bit of a history lesson, but I'm going somewhere with it. So we talk in history so that we can talk our future. Do you get that? Because so, I want you to imagine today what it would look like if this bunch of folk lived and loved and ate together and prayed together and cared for one another like these early guys did. What would happen in terms of us being noticed? Not for being noticed, but people saying, what is going on with those, with those guys and girls at Olive Tree Church? And we would be attractive and beautiful to the watching world. So back to the emperors. They were playing the political game. They, to keep all the different parts of the empire happy, apart from the odd game and throwing gladiator games and, that and throwing a bit of bread around, what they would do is they would allow different groups to worship a whole range of gods. So you had these magnificent temples in Ephesus, beautiful, and you know, in Athens and Rome. I mean, the emperor himself had an emperor cult. You could worship him. And the emperor would allow that. The only people that weren't allowed freedom of worship, guess who they were? Us Christians, those Christians. They were a persecuted minority. So the emperor thought it was politically expedient to encourage worship. He allowed temples and all the rest. Christians were scratching around at best in a, in a home. Paul writes in Colossia, listen, say hi to Nymphia, uh, who's a lady who a church meets in her home. But if things really turned bad, there was a lot of persecution, you ended up in the catacombs or you were hiding. You know, you were literally secret meetings. So 
life ain't good in the natural, but Paul says in verse 6, he says, listen, the church is thriving. The gospel is bearing fruit and growing. What, what's, what's going on there? Now, you can understand, Paul, an apostle, he's probably, you think, well, maybe he's blowing a bit of smoke and saying, listen, you guys are my converts. Well done. You're loving each other. The problem is that you read ancient history, the opponents of the church were actually writing these things. Uh, the, the, the Greek and Roman philosophers saying, I can't understand it, but they would write, see how they love one another. That wasn't a Christian writing. That was like, that was like a all black writing about the spirit rock. See how well they played last time. It just shouldn't happen. And in this, in this incredible thing, the, the, the opponents are saying, man, these Christians are doing something in the most dire of circumstances, which is so attractive that they that actually they're becoming a bit of a pest. They were growing. Every crevice of the of the empire had little Christian communities springing up: Colossae, Thessalonica, you know, Laodicea, even in Rome, the, the center of power. This is happening. And um, now let's just fast forward three hundred years. In the year three one three, a chap by the name of um, Constantine the Great becomes emperor, and he, people think he has a religious experience while before going into battle. But the upshot of it is that he actually provides, after that, through the Edict of Milan, freedom of worship for Christians. So, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, that's great. You know, imagine you've been, a, you've been like a, an oppressed refugee minority, sunny Germany, throw open the doors, you come onto the door, maybe if you go to the UK, you've been living a bad life wherever you are, and next moment, as Christians, everything's possible, there's no more nonsense, and suddenly, like, the whole environment's changed, from being a persecuted minority, all of a sudden, like, you're the flavor of the month, you actually, if you're Christian now, you can even get a bit of an advancement in, in, in your career for being a Christian, because the, the emperor's now decided, hey, everyone must be Christians, or I like this Christian Thing. And so there's like a complete reversal, but that only lasts 50 years. And then like providentially, I believe, there's like a disastrous thing where his nephew, Constantine's nephew, whose name was Flavius Claudius Julianus. It's quite a name. Eh? These, in fact, it's much longer than that. I just took the first three because it sounds good. He was Constantine's nephew. He's proclaimed, um, he's a great warrior, a, a, a leader of his troops, and they make him the new emperor. He had grown up in a Christian home, but he just boots that out and says, listen, I'm going back to paganism. And he starts from, from the central power. He begins a pagan reform initiative. He throws everything at it. Um, and he becomes an enemy of the faith. In latter years, he's known as Julian the Apostate because he walked away from the true faith to become a pagan. But he confiscates land. It's back to where if you're Christian, you, you know, you're the, the, the scum of the earth. You can do nothing. And, um, and he throws every bit of resource at this pagan revitalization thing. The upshot of it is that it fails dismally. It just doesn't even get off the ground. It's like a plane. just crashes through the fence and it, it burns. What went wrong with it? Actually, quite an innocuous little enemy got, got in the way of his thing. And to give you a peek into what went wrong, he writes a letter, old Julian, the apostate, the emperor, to a Roman priest who's in charge of the province of Galatia, and he wants his pagan res restoration program to thunder forward. And so he writes to the priest, and he says, listen, I want you, the guy's name is Arsacius, Arsacius, never could you, 
but don't call your kid that. He says, coerce your priests, your fellow priests who live in Galatia, Roman priests. They've got to start acting like, more like, guess who? Christians. Read that again. He's trying to revitalize paganism. And he says to the priest, listen, the one way you're going to get this right, start acting like the Christians. Here's the letter that he writes to this priest. Erect many hostels, one in each city. Why? Because for 300 years, while they were persecuted, Christians were hospitable to people. And he says, erect these hostels in order that strangers may enjoy my kindness, the emperor. Not only those of our own faith, but also of other faith, whoever is in need of money. Where did he get that from? First, second, third century Christians were noted for their kindness to people of other tribes, other languages, other religions. They just helped anyone. You didn't have to be a Christian to enjoy the beautiful, beneficial blessing of other Christians. Oops, of Christians. That's probably done. That's okay, leave it. I can still see it's timing me. I'm 15 minutes in. Um, he writes, he says to the priest, I've been devising a plan by which you'll be able to get supplies. He says, I've ordered, the emperor says, that in all of Galatia, 30,000 modi of grain, which is like bucketfuls of grain, and what I like, 60,000 pints of wine must be provided. And he says, those must be given to strangers and beggars. This is quite, quite a good strategy. He says, it's disgraceful to the priest that when no Jew is a beggar, and these impious Galileans, which is, he's referencing Christians, these impious Christians, support our poor, the pagan poor, in addition to their own. Uh, you can, can you see where this is going? The emperor can't get his mind around this thing that he's been shown up as emperor with all the resource by a bunch of Christians with almost nothing. And he says, to make it even worse, while everyone is able to see that our people are in want of aid from ourselves, the program just crashes and burns. So that's the impact, folk, of a community of Christians that love one another. Let that love spill out of the building. See where I'm going. Can you imagine? Just this motley bunch of folk, including me here, although I'm quite elevated. <laughs> Can you just imagine what it would look like if this community, just I'm talking to you folk, began to just take Jesus at his word and say, Lord, you said if we love one another, people will know that we serve and follow you, yes, and that if we won, that it will be the most powerful testimony and proclamation before we said a word, that you sent me, Father, which is the gospel. For God so loved the world that he, he gave. Just two things. Loving one another, being united in that love, is very, very powerful. More powerful than Flavius, whatever his name was, Claudius. More powerful than the Roman Empire. 300 years start to finish, and after that, no more pagan temples. It just all came burning down. And uh, here we are today, still worshiping the Lord. So, I mean, I'm just, there's this interesting book called The Triumph of Christianity, written by a sociologist and a historian. He just says, and the subtitle is, How the Jesus Movement Became the World's Largest Religion. And after you read quite a thick book, he said, well, look, basically, yes, great message, da-da-da-da-da-da, all there is. But he said, really, just really one thing. People for 300 years kept saying, see how they love one another. See how they love us. It's a very, very powerful, isn't it? Loving people. So here's the big idea. 
as I say, can we imagine us loving each other and not then keep it in these four walls, but letting that spill out? You know, maybe we leave here, we go and we sit across and have a coffee somewhere or whatever. I've lived in this area for 28, 30 years and I'm a member of the library, I come and shop, the family, whatever, we ride past here. Haven't you noticed that this building in some ways was quite, it was here, but it was ne- you th- you always, what, what's going on there? Do you think we could change that? Do you think it's possible to, this space that Paul mentioned earlier, is, is, is we've inherited in a sense. It's been given to us like in trust, I believe. Although we've bought it, I, I, I think God has given this to us to, for, for a season, such as this, where we can be a bit like the first cent- and third century churches. Francis Schaeffer says, that this community of love that, that, we've, that I've been describing for you is what he called the final apologetic. And apologetic is when someone says, why, why, why are you a Christian? Or give me proof for it. And you give an answer. That's an apologetic. And Schaefer said, when all of our clever reasoning and our good theology, and that's all good in its place, when all of that's said and done, he said, there's an, a final apologetic that has no real answer. And that is what I described. It's when Christians live the way Jesus asked us to live, loving one another. That, that's the end of the argument. Schaeffer says, I'm convinced that in the 20th century when he wrote this book, people all over the world will not listen if we have the right doctrine or the right church building or polity, but are not exhibiting community. Our love won't be perfect, he says, but it will be substantial enough for the world to be able to see and observe. Amazing, hey? And then he quotes, he says, because it has to fit into what he calls John 13 and John 17. And those are two times where Jesus says two profound things. In John 17, Jesus is praying just before his crucifixion. And he says, Father, I'm praying for this bunch of disciples of mine that they would be one, loving each other. And the reason I'm doing that is that if they live like that, the world who looks in will know that you sent me. And then in John 13, he's just Wash the feet of the disciples. He says, I'm giving you a new commandment, guys. It's his last parting shot. I'm giving you a new commandment. Love one another. And he, he unpacks that a bit. And he says, if you do that, people will know that you're my disciples. Not, not the Bible we carry, whatever. No, will we love one another? Now, the reason that old Julian's thing failed, they say, is that there was nothing in pagan philosophy or religion that was a foundation, substantial foundation for this love theology, as I call it, this foundation stone, which I'm trying to drop down into the bucket and say, this is one of our olive tree things. We want to be a community that people know they can come and find the love of God and our love there. And uh, the pagans didn't have anything like it. Christians, we did have it. All through scripture, let me just quickly go. We have um, a, 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 a reason and a doctrinal base that's solid throughout the scriptures. Let me give you a quick refresher course. Luke 10. One occasion, an expert in the law, probably a Pharisee, stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, seems in doctrine, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You think, well, that's quite good. If you ask a pastor, how do I inherit life? Yes. What is written in the law, Jesus said. How do you read it? So the guy answers. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. 
And then he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he, what he's doing is he's pairing two chapters, uh, two verses from different books in the, in the Torah, those first five books of Moses. That's what this scribe's doing. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Well done. Do this and you will live. And what Jesus was just reinforcing for that scribe, although he was trying to get behind Jesus, was the truth that's evident throughout Scripture, which is that for humans to flourish, for you and I to really have life that is not just life that doesn't end, but that life that is full, because that's the sense of eternal life. For that to happen, there are only two things we have to do. We've got to love God with all that we have, and we've got to then love our neighbor. St. Augustine in the 4th century, about the same time as these other Roman guys, famous Christian scholar, he said, love God with all your heart and do whatever you want to do. Now, that's, that sounds dangerous. You know, as a, as a, as a, as a teacher, maybe a scripture, you think, geez, man, imagine if I tell my kids, listen, all you've got to do, but, son, daughter, just love God with everything you've got, and then I'm not worried. I, I won't even worry what you're doing. There's a profound truth there is that if we truly love God with everything in us, our heart, our mind, whatever, what will flow from that is pure beauty, pure joy, blessing, thriving. I mean, can you imagine a society where that starts to be even become evident in incipient form? Unbelievable. So that's, that was throughout Scripture. So... Back to Colossians, and I'm closing. I'm just going to read a few scriptures. Just what does this love look like that I'm talking about? So Paul says, I want you to know, he's writing to Colossians, how hard I'm contending for you and for those in Laodicea, the church down the road, and for all who have not met me personally. My goal, Paul says, now listen, this is what, why he's writing this letter. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart, which is really a faith thing, and secondly, united in love. Paul's going to all this effort to see something birthed and carried forward in these congregations. And it's that we would be, 2,000 years later, be able to read that and say, we need to be united in love. John 13, which I quoted earlier, a new command I give you, love one another, as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Just put that in your pipe and smoke that. That's John 13. Quickly before I read a few more scriptures. Love in English. I love ice cream. I love watching birds. I love traveling. I love my wife. I love my kids. It's quite a broad word, isn't it? People love cars. If you're a true man, you love a plane. I mean, that's important. But, but jokes aside... English doesn't have enough words almost to differentiate like Greek did. So in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, when Jesus or the apostles are talking about the love of God, they use a specific Greek term called agape. Um, that's the only Greek I know, but it sounds good, agape. But agape is the love of God, which is different to our feeling, emotional type of love, which there's a place for. The Greeks were called Eros, they had all different things, or love for a brother, brotherly love. But, but the highest form of love, God's love, they use this term agape. And it, it's a love that doesn't depend on feeling to express itself. 
we, we, we get glimpses of it because when a husband or a wife or a spouse loves the other through a difficult period, when there's no, nothing beautiful about the other and chooses to love, that's, that's a, a reflection of what agape love is. As opposed to saying, oh, I love that picture or I love that, which is an impulsive thing. And that's why Jesus can say to, to his followers, listen, it's good to love one another and love your neighbor, but I'm telling you, at some stage, you're going to need to learn to love your enemies. The moment you get into that territory, we realize that we don't have, I don't have, none of us has that type of resource within us. And that's why when Paul writes to the Roman church, he says, this is the foundation thing he says. He says that God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, has been given to us. So when you and I come to faith in Jesus and say, we're going to follow you, Lord, what God does from his side is he empowers us. He, he gives you and I the power to, to love like that. Not perfectly, because we're not God. God is love. That's a, that's a profound thing which you can think about. God, he, not, he, he doesn't love. He actually, he is love. So he just, when, he, when, he, when he's doing what he does, he, he, he loves. And so we need to understand that. Is that what, 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 what Jesus is calling his followers to? Is It's a high bar, but, but he's going to help us. Isn't that encouraging? You know, it's not like, he, he's not setting us up to fail. He's setting the bar high to say, Guys, aim there. Paul said that last week. Let, let's, aim, let's aim here, and I'm going to help you. What does this love look like? Some scriptures, and I'm going to close. Colossians 3, Paul says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, we've been chosen by him, holy and dearly loved, loved by God. Clothe yourselves, that's something that we do, with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. Forgiveness is a big part of that type of love. If any one of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues of kindness and compassion, what does Paul say? He says, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Do you see how love is at the center of our compassion and our acts of mercy and our forgiving of one another? And our, sometimes when we rub each other the wrong way, God's love comes to the rescue. 1 John 3.16 just another scripture. This is how we know what love is. People say, Grant, can you def define this love? Yeah, okay, yeah, John's helping me out. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Galatians 5, Paul writes to the Galatians. Brothers and sisters, you were called to be free, and we all say, whoopee, free, free from sin, free from but don't let your freedom be an excuse to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. And then this big bombshell. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. And he just quotes, love your neighbor as yourself. Unbelievable, isn't it? Amazingly powerful. And to close, a passage on love that often gets read at weddings, and it's probably quite good. But this can be read any time of the night or day and should be read quite often. 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says, look, if I speak in tongues, men of angels don't have love. I'm like a gong. Simple, clashing simple. If I have this gift of prophecy and can fathom out and I'm 
you really got an incredible gift with no love, nothing. If like I'm a man of faith or a woman of faith and I can move mountains, it's quite impressive. And I've got all of that and I've got no love, nothing. If I give everything that I have, I'm a generous person to the poor. No love, nothing. And then he gets, Paul starts in verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. Does not envy, doesn't boast. It's not proud. That's quite an interesting one. If the hat wears, that's, it doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. And it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love loves beautiful things and makes things beautiful. It always protects, it always trusts, always hopes. It always perseveres. Paul then says, love never fails. Most things fail. We fail. Systems of economy fail. Politicians fail. Love never fails. Where there are prophecies, they will cease, and he goes on. And then he ends off by saying, and now three things remain. He's talking to the Corinthians. He says, there's faith, and there's hope, and there's love. All important things. But he says, the greatest of these is love.